Welcome to this podcast of the New York City Bar Association. In this episode, Civil Court Act and the Housing Part, the first episode in our series on housing part proceedings and the reality of housing court. Agata Rumprecht Behrens, a court attorney currently assigned to the HB Part in Queens Housing Court, moderates a panel discussion with Vijay Kitson, a partner at Hertz Cherson Rosenthal specializing in landlord-tenant trial advocacy, Rachel Nager, a tenant attorney and advocate representing tenants in housing court, Travis Arundel, supervising attorney at Department of Housing Preservation and Development, and Judge Shorab Ibrahim, a housing judge appointed in 2018. The statements and opinions of each speaker are their own and do not represent the views or opinions of other speakers, the Housing Court Committee, the City Bar, respective law firms, or the Office of Court Administration. Here's Agata Rumprecht Behrens. Welcome, everyone. My name is Agata Rumprecht Behrens, and I am a court attorney currently assigned to the HP part in Queens Housing Court. HP stands for Housing Part. The housing part is a section of the housing court where New York City residents and the Department of Housing Preservation and Development can bring cases to seek repairs and file harassment claims against their landlords. With my fellow housing court committee members, we are excited to use this new and exciting forum to create a series of podcasts about the HP part. We are grateful to the New York City Bar and to the Housing Court Committee for this opportunity and the tools to create this project. Hi, my name is Vijay Kitson. I'm a partner at Hertz Cherson Rosenthal, and I specialize in landlord-tenant trial advocacy. Hi, everyone. My name is Rachel Nager. I'm a tenant attorney and advocate representing tenants to fight for housing justice issues against displacement and gentrification. Hello everyone, my name is Travis Arundo. I'm a supervising attorney at Department of Housing Preservation and Development doing housing enforcement. And I've been a practicing housing court attorney for approximately 14 years. Um, hello everyone, my name is Sharab Ibrahim. I'm a housing judge appointed to the bench in 2018. I've been in the HP part in Bronx County since February of 2020. Before becoming a judge, I practiced in the housing court, including often in the HP part for about 15 years. Um, thank you everyone for being here with us. And again, thank you for the New York City Bar and the Housing Court Committee for this opportunity. Um, I just wanna to touch a little bit on the history of the housing court. Before the New York City Civil Court housing part was started in 1973, repair issues were often dealt with in the city's criminal courts and uh, any practitioners or other historians around from that time will tell you that it was not an effective way of dealing with um, repair issues. And frankly, the court didn't seem to pay a lot of attention or care to those issues. So the impetus for the housing part was to deal with those issues and other landlord-tenant disputes in one centralized place. So the housing part was created by Civil Court Act Section 110, which states unequivocally that the court shall be devoted to actions and proceedings involving the establishment and maintenance of housing standards. That seems pretty clear, right? So in other words, the housing court was tasked with enforcing housing standards. Um, from the very beginning though, just based on the numbers, we can see that 
that's not how the users of the court view the court. Um, by 1983, although there were almost 400,000 filings, only 3% of those were initiated by tenants. So if the tenants are starting cases for to get their repairs done or to punish the landlord for not doing repairs, that's about 12,000 cases compared to about over 350,000 non-payments and holdovers. So when people think of the housing court, they don't think about where you go to get your repairs done. They think about that's where I'm going to be sued to either leave my apartment or pay rent. Um, subsequent years tell similar stories. In 1996, there were over 300,000 eviction cases and about 10,000 HP cases. It's fairly, those numbers fairly track. Uh, I mean, the total numbers are obviously down over the years and um, way down over the pandemic era cases, but that's been the history of the housing court. Many, many eviction cases and far fewer HP cases. Um, so however we look at those numbers, they give a clear imp impression that the HP part or the maintenance part, if you wanna go with that term, is a small, um, maybe as some think of it, insignif insignificant part of the court. But again, if you recall, the court was created for the maintenance, maintenance of housing standards. And we hope that we'll shed some light on the importance of the HP part uh, in, in this podcast and maybe demystify um, the part a little bit because people can be intimidated by going to court in general. And we hope to, uh, to bring some light to this part. So I'll just pose a question to the group. What do you guys think about the numbers that I've discussed? Why, why is it that there are so many eviction cases and so few cases that are commenced for um, maintenance issues? BJ? Well, I think it's really important to remember that landlord-tenant matters, whether they're eviction cases or an HP proceeding for repairs, it all involves the court. It's litigation. Litigation is very costly and it requires a large time expense. Um, generally in housing court, for the most part, landlords are corporate entities um, and for purposes of bringing eviction cases, um, those those corporate entities have to use attorneys. So um, when you're hiring professional litigators to deal with your cases, uh, routinely, um, it's a lot easier for you to commence cases and prosecute cases, otherwise litigate cases. Whereas um, traditionally, um, attorney representation in the past, not so much now, but has been um, largely pro se. So tenants have had to go to court on their own to litigate cases. Um, so if you have a job, if you have a family, you have to look at after. Um, you may not necessarily have the time to commit to really litigating a case because it can be complicated. Um, so it's very expensive in terms of time and money if you have to hire an attorney. Um, so that's one facet. Mm -hmm. And housing court has historically been a place where the balance of power is very skewed. 
So like Vijay just said, landlords are almost always represented and tenants have usually not had representation, whether it's in the HP part for affirmative litigation or in the eviction parts. And so while there are some grants now that have provided for more tenant representation, there's just an inherent power imbalance. It's the property owners and those who are not property owners. So tenants, in an effort to seek basic repairs and essential services in their homes, must spend hours, days, months in housing court with long adjournments and usually little change in their circumstances. So many times tenants don't know their rights or aren't able to spend the time or resources required to fight for their rights. Or tenants either don't know that they can go to housing court to seek repairs or choose to manage with the conditions of disrepair rather than go to housing court and deal with the circumstances there. There's also the issue I think of um outside of tenant starting cases, HPD, and perhaps uh, Travis can talk a little bit about this, um, HPD has to operate with some sort of triage, right? I mean, there are so many violations in the city. Um, I don't think, and, and, and again, HPD can speak to this, I don't think they can bring the amount of cases that they may necessarily want to bring. Um, so that's one issue. And Travis, I would ask you to speak about that. But before you get to that, there's also the issue of when a landlord starts a case, they simply serve a petition notice of petition. For a tenant to get into court, they have to ask a judge to sign an order to show cause. And that additional step where a judge um, may think there's a claim or not a claim may um, encourage tenants to maybe not file claims if they have to go to a judge and explain why they want to see the judge again another time. Um, and again, they're doing that, as Vijay said, on their own time and own money often. So there are, there are a lot of reasons why those numbers are what they are. So so to go with what Judge Ibrahim was referring to with regards to HPD commencing cases, obviously with, you know, any any kind of uh, city resources or limited resources available um, to bring the amount of cases that you would like to bring. And so obviously, you know, HPD uh, focuses on trying to get cases or as, as, as much bang for the bucks as, as you would say, with trying to direct its uh, litigation to uh, offenders, very bad offenders, and with those limited resources, you can only concentrate on that. And one of the reasons why you have in the statute a private right of action pro se was to allow tenants to be able to come in and enforce the rights that presumably um, HPD either uh, couldn't bring because of resources or two, even if the tenants disagree, maybe they have a different uh, position that HPD has on a particular violation. So it allows them to be able to do that. But prior to 2016, um, mostly my experiences is that obviously pro se was the predominant um, way of, of cases being brought into the HP part. Um, most of the tenants, usually low income tenants are representing themselves. They didn't have access to the tenant. And that was a function of the, the, the resources or grants that were available um, at that particular time. Mostly the city 
addressed uh, the concerns of eviction and supported those uh, supported the funding towards eviction defense. So legal services, the legal services community would come in and defend um, eviction cases. But there was no real funding uh, prior to 2016 for affirmative cases. That changed dramatically in 2016 when we had a rezoning of the city and we saw huge gentrification happening in lower income communities being pushed out. Um, and, and once those funding uh, priorities shifted um, with the city by creating an anti-harassment grant and programming, then you started to see more aggressive litigation by attorneys in the legal services community in HP Park. And so what has slowly changed from a part that was predominantly pro se has slowly started to, you start to see more uh, affirmative litigation um, by tenants who are represented by attorneys. And so I, I think you will see that probably those numbers of the kind of cases more of those cases being litigated, and then obviously those cases taking much more time and effort of the court into, in, into litigating these cases because now tenants have access to legal representation that they didn't have before. For, for what it's worth, um, just sitting in the HP part right now, I see far more tenants being represented, if not initially, um, when they come back a second time. And I see far more cases initiated by tenants represented by counsel. And there's definitely more of a balance between tenants appearing without an attorney and those appearing with an attorney in my part. I'm really interested how the Civil Court Act 110 gives the court a mandate. It says shall. And in New York jurisprudence, we know that shall is a mandate. There's no discretion for the court. The court must main, use its powers to maintain housing standards. And, but currently in housing court, there's only one HP part or one affirmative part. So that means out of all of the cases handled in housing court, only one judge is assigned all the affirmative cases filed by tenants. I find that ironic because housing court was created with this mandate. But additionally, the HP part judge usually hears all of the affirmative cases, but must also hear all of their trials. So while resolution part judges or eviction cases get to send out their cases to a trial part, the HP part judge must usually handle the trials before it also. So as we've discussed today, how the housing court was designed by the legislature to handle these matters related to housing standards and maintenance, but yet the court is providing fewer resources to handle those types of cases. So if housing court is to restore its function to back to its legislative intent, its judicial centerpiece must be the HP part. So it's my opinion that housing court should assign more than one HP part judge. Hiring more judges and assigning more than one judge to the HP part can relieve the backlog in the HP parts for case appearances, for adjournments and resolutions. And additionally, I, it's my opinion that HP part judges should be able to send their cases to a trial part so that 
that procedure can allow the HP part judges to maintain control over their calendars and adjudicate the cases more efficiently and allow trials to be calendared and tried faster across multiple trial parts so that tenants ultimately can seek the relief that they're looking for. some interesting advocacy, um, Rachel, and I'm sure that you're working on that. Uh, as being part of the judiciary, um, I don't know that I can speak to that uh, too much. I will say that I think um, in recent months anyway, that um, there has been some flexibility in sending out some HP trials to the expediter rather than keeping it in the HP. Um, I think that does help calendars. Um, I don't know if that's citywide, but I think they're doing that in Manhattan. They may be doing that in Brooklyn. And I do have in the Bronx the okay to do it, although I have not sent anything to the expediter yet. So there is some flexibility there. And I think that's all I can say about that. So now that we've spoken about the numbers, and of course, it's the numbers that affects a lot of these things, right? Um, including having one HP judge as opposed to all the other judges taking care of the other types of cases, because the, I, the numbers generally have supported that. We'll see what happens in the future. Um, but let's talk about the nuts and bolts of a cases that comes to the HP part. Um, how does a case get started and how does it work its way through the part? Mr. Kitson? So, I mean, I guess we should talk about first, you know, what happens when you're a tenant and you need something fixed in your apartment? Um, obviously, we wouldn't be talking about coming to court if you called your landlord and they came promptly and they took care of your repairs and everything was done. We wouldn't have to have this conversation. but. We're thinking about the scenario where you've reported a condition to your landlord and nothing's happened about it. It's existed for a while, or maybe not. It doesn't have to have existed for a while, um, or it's gotten worse. Um, I think the, the important thing to remember is that we're talking about litigation here. And the, the first thing you should probably do is um, make sure that your claims or the conditions that you're trying to get fixed are not ambiguous, that you can come with as, as much evidence as possible to the, um, to the point where you want to come to court. So um, pre-litigation is very important in terms of chances of success generally and specifically to HP cases. So um, most people uh, have access to relatively cheap uh photo and video technology these days in our cell phones. Um, take good pictures of the conditions that you're complaining about. You can, you can take a video, pictures from different angles, um, try and save communication to the landlord. If you're sending a letter, you, know, you should probably um, keep a copy of the letter, proof that you sent it, mailing, um, whether it's certified mailing or something like that, or by email, save the email thread the pictures to the landlord in your email thread. You know, all of these types of things you can do um, really lay out to a court when you get in front of it or get you ready for the process at least by showing, look, this is my condition. I notified the landlord. Um, 
and uh, I've been here to provide access for them. And the conditions gotten worse. You can keep written logs about what happens. You can, uh, and any way of recording what's happened and something that's in a form where the court or the other side or your own attorney, if you end up getting one, can easily consume the information and relay it to the court. Um, it's, uh, it's very easy to document the process of what you're doing about your repairs and how they've been addressed. And that should be the number one focus in your mind before you're getting to court. Uh, Rachel, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, well, it's important for tenants to know that when they're coming to the HP part, bringing HP proceedings, um, the, the case requires there to be a code violation. So, um, you know, if, if it's not a code violation, then the court will have to do a lot of fact finding to determine whether or not it should be. But um, if you are experiencing a condition of disrepair, you need to be calling 311. I think that's the greatest tool tenants can use to prove that they have a violation in their apartment, a condition of disrepair that the court can order the landlord to correct. So calling 311 is a really big part of your pre-litigation uh, before bringing a case so that HPD can come and inspect the apartment, can look at what constitutes violations. And like VJ said, doing a lot of documentation is important before you bring a case. So taking photos of the conditions, keeping a heat log if you're not having consistent heat or hot water, doing anything you can to show that you've given notice to your landlord, the conditions still exist and persists today or recurs and um, showing that this has been something you've been dealing with for a really long time, whether that's calling 311, taking pictures, sending emails, all the above is important for tenants to do beforehand. And, yeah, so mm -hmm. if, if I could just uh, say this, as the judge, obviously things, and um, Travis will speak to this in a little bit, things are much easier if there's a violation placed by the city. The whole case becomes um, much more straightforward. But I think Vijay gives good advice, and so do you, Rachel, regarding taking photos and keeping other types of evidence because um, if HBD for some reason does not place a violation, there is a presumption that the condition does not exist and your evidence will become very important in trying to overcome that presumption. Um, one of the interesting things about remote proceedings, which have been instituted largely during um, during the pandemic is that I've had tenants at home with a camera appearing and they can simply show me the condition. And that has been a simple and straightforward way for the court to view the condition for itself and make a determination in absence of an HPD violation. Um, the other thing that VJ touched on is communicating with the other side I often have landlords coming in and saying, they never even told me about this condition. And sometimes that's true. Sometimes it is definitely not true. But, you know, to avoid maybe having to spend multiple days in court and the costs that come with that, communication with uh, your landlord and or your tenant is 
important and can avoid um, at least some portion of litigation. Yeah, and I think that by the time tenants bring an HP part case, uh, that it it really the the communication with the landlord has become so unhealthy. You know, there's a reason why they have to sue their landlord to get repairs. Um, so whether or not the tenant is experiencing what they believe might be harassment with the landlord or um, you know, other relationship issues, at that point, I think most of the time I see the landlord-tenant relationship has just dissolved into a very unhealthy scenario. Um, so I'd like to know, Travis, what is HPD's role in doing inspections? If a tenant has called 311, what next? So HPD, um, as the enforcement agency, has the um, duty or the responsibility to inspect the properties, whether it's through a 311 call or whether it's through a court appointed uh, due to a case that was initiated in the HP part. Um, and typically, every HP case or every case that's going to housing court, the primary um, document, the controlling document, as the judge already indicated, would be the um, inspection results of HP's inspection. And that's either whether from the tenant's perspective, a violation was placed, or the landlord's perspective, a violation is not placed. And just to throw a, a, a little wrinkle, you know, there are several enforcement agencies other than HPD that conduct inspections of housing standards, including the Department of Buildings, the, the Health Department, um, um, New York City Environmental um, Protection Department. So this would be true for their inspections also. If they were to go out and inspect the property and find conditions or did not find conditions, the, the, the presumption of the law would, would, would follow um, their findings. So in a typical HPD inspection, if the if you know if we have a tenant that's complaining about particular conditions, the inspector would go out, they would try to verify whether those conditions actually exist. Also, while they're there to, to see what the, the 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 tenant has complained about, if they see any violations in a line of travel, they will issue violations on their, their line of travel. And then also um, during heat during heat season, they will check for heat and hot water, whether or not there was a request for it. If they notice that there's a, a minor child that could be living in the apartment, they will also check for lead conditions, um, even though it's not requested. Um, and this is typically what the inspector would do. It's important to note that the inspections that happen are generally, usually visual inspections. So what that means is what the inspector can see um, if there are underlying conditions that may uh, that are not actually visual or can't be seen the typical inspection would not come across would not come across those particular kind of conditions and you would need to have a more thorough inspection but whatever the inspector does find that is reported to the court and becomes part of the uh, the case and generally will we'll have some weight to it as because of the presumption of the law and then the burden will be either be on the owner to show that in fact the violation does not exist or if the violation was not found the burden would be on the tenant to show that in fact the violation does exist so that's 
typically what you would see in an HB inspection and how it would impact the course. Thank you for that overview of the inspection process, Travis. Uh, but as a court attorney uh, who sees these cases all the time, I think it's important to note that some of these violations or conditions are not easily quantifiable. Sometimes there is a leak, but the leak only occurs where the tenant upstairs takes a shower or when it's raining a lot outside. Uh, sometimes for heat complaints, the inspector might come out to the property on a nice sunny day where heat is not required. It is important to remember that when the inspector does not place the violation, the tenant themselves must find other ways to prove that this condition exists. This might require multiple inspections or reinspections by HPD or other agencies, or it might require testimony, photos, and videos, which is something that VJ and Rachel already mentioned, and the judge as well with the advent of video conferencing and seeing things live as they happen. Um, I think what uh, Travis touched on in terms of the presumption needs to, uh, we need to talk about that a little bit more because as I said earlier, the placement of the violation streamlines the entire case, makes things very easy. Uh, easy may not be the best word, but at the end of the day for the court, it makes things much simpler. Because if HPD issues a violation, that is proof that the condition exists. The tenant does not have to then um, provide their photos and all those other things we, we spoke about. The um, burden shifts to the landlord once there's a violation to show that it does not exist. And that's frankly, I've never even seen that in my two years sitting in, in the housing court, and I never saw it in the 15 years I practiced. The landlord has never, in my experience, been able to prove that the condition found by HPD did not exist. I can imagine that they might be able to, um, depending on the type of violation, but it's something that simply does not come up. Um, so that violation and that presumption is likely going to lead to an order to correct. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Um, but as Agatha was saying, there are things that are not so easily um, found to be violations like heat, hot water. It can be, obviously, if the inspector goes and there's sufficient hot water, there's not going to be a violation. But two hours later, there may not be hot water. So that will need additional testimony and fact-finding. Um, Two of the things that have become hot topics right now, one is mold. The HPD inspector generally will only place a mold violation if they can see mold on a surface. Now, if a landlord comes and paints over that surface, I'm not saying that's what they do, but that's often what they do. Um, there will not be a mold violation but the mold is still there if it's simply painted over. So it will reoccur and then you will have these cases that are just going in circles. So the court has to figure out something to do with those cases. So it's important. I mean, sometimes it, sometimes the tenant will might need an expert to testify and we've experts do testify in housing court, believe it or not. Um, but again, the HPD violation 
is the probably the most important document in the HP case. Um, once you have the violation, it is easier for the court to settle the case. Most cases do settle if there are violations and it is easier and lawful for the court to issue an order. If not, it becomes more complicated because there are issues of fact and additional court dates will be necessary. I think it's also very important that everybody manages their expectations in the process when it comes to violations of the housing maintenance code. Um, you know, there are gray areas that exist. So oftentimes when seeking repairs or correction of violations that have been placed, you'll see written into the violation that the, the work that has to be done is like replace a, uh, with a same or similar color broken tiles in the bathroom or something like that. Uh, paint, especially a lot of, you see oftentimes a lot of problems where apartments are repainted, not necessarily done in the original color. It's the same or similar color. Um, the housing maintenance code doesn't really require high-end fittings or appliances that are in fashion, we'll say, um, chances are you're not gonna get stainless steel appliances um, if the landlord has to replace uh, something in your kitchen. Um, it's, it, the housing maintenance code really is kind of like a, a, a bare minimum for a housing standard as far as uh, the legislature is concerned with uh, uh, what has been kind of set. So it's very important to remember you're, you're, there's a certain level of housing standard that is embodied in the housing maintenance code. And that is often not what we want, it is more so what we need. I think, I think generally people do understand that and tenants do understand it, but there are always um, issues that something's not aesthetically pleasing and the court has to inform uh, the tenant that, you know, although we all want nice things, again, the hazard maintenance code is, as you said, it's a, it's, a, it's a bare minimum. And that's what the landlord has to reach. That is also our mandate, as, Ms., uh, as Rachel said, that we have to enforce the housing maintenance code. And if the landlord reaches that bare minimum, they've reached a bare minimum and, and we have to move on. That is an interesting point, although as the housing stock changes, it is modernized, what happens to those things? For example, in Queens, I am seeing a few cases that have to do with central air in these small one or two family houses. There is no violation for lack of central air, but people want that fixed. Um, the other things are amenities fancy refrigerators with Wi-Fi and gadgets, Nets thermostats. We are seeing some cases uh, in the smaller buildings asking for those higher end things. Right. Uh, I think the standard that's really articulated in the code is functional and hygienic, right? Same and similar functional and hygienic. That's kind of like the level we're at. But it's, I think it's also important that everybody realizes that just because it's not a violation of the housing maintenance code itself doesn't mean that you can't still ask the court to place a violation. Generally speaking, a rule of thumb is when you move into an apartment and you're agreeing to pay rent for the service, um, 
it's the service as it is when you moved in. So if somehow, if that includes your uh, air conditioning or your heat through a central air system, maybe that's not addressed by the housing maintenance code, but it is a service that you paid for. So you can right. so petition the court to find that it is a violation, perhaps. Well, what I, what I tell, perhaps. Um, what, I, what I would tell a petitioner in that case is it may not be a violation of the housing maintenance code, but you have a contract with the other side and it may be a um, breach of that contract. And there are ways to enforce your contract, which may not be in the HP part. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's a tricky line, uh, I would say, but um, generally that's, that's what I, I, would, I would say, right? You can have an abatement for certain things that are not violations of the housing maintenance code an abatement being a reduction in rent for um, the other the other side not living up to 100% of your contract. And, and I think just to, to add on that with my experience with these kind of like very detailed or small kind of detailed issues, you know, you're not gonna get the, the owner to give you necessarily a, a stainless steel, let's say refrigerator. However, if you're, if you're, if you're talking about, you know, trying to get a matching tile, and or maybe you know a certain type of paint a lot of times these things can be resolved even though the court doesn't legally have the have the mandate to, to order it but a lot of these things just make common sense kind of practical sense you know why litigate these kind of little small details many of these things many times can be worked out between the owner. Okay, I'll, I'll try to get that white tile or, you know, what if you, if the tenant purchases the paint, you know, and they paint it. So I would, you know, my suggestion is, is that you should always ask, even though you don't, even though it's not legally required, you should always ask. And you'd be surprised sometimes just the, the human side of it is, it just makes common sense, practical. And sometimes it's just required. Sometimes I've seen certain judges like, come on, you could do that. And, and, and usually that's enough to kind of, you know, get things to happen. So you should always ask, but you should also be very much aware of, of the, the, the mandate that the court has to follow the law and, um, and, and not, be able, not be able to force or order the, own, the owner to do a specific thing or the tenant to do a specific thing. Um, but you should try, you know, at least. Those are good points, Travis, but um, maybe let's circle back to violations. The, uh, when HPD goes and they place violations, um, you know, I think all of us know here that they place uh, three classes of violations. Can you talk about what those are and, um, you know, what that might mean, depending on what class of violation it is? So there, there are three classes of violations that you know, the code actually assigns um, to conditions um, that violate housing standards. And obviously HPD, because we're the, the agency that is doing the inspections, you know, the, um, the deference is given to our inspectors to actually classify these. Things. So typically a C violation is the most egregious violation is considered immediately hazardous violation. And the, the code requires that these conditions be corrected within 24 hours. B violations are hazardous violations required to be corrected within 30 days. 
And A violations are non-hazardous conditions which are required to be corrected within 90 days. Um, there, um, there are certain C violations that you get more time with, such as lead and, and mold. But generally, if you see a C violation, it's within 24 hours. Having said that, the owner should be very much aware of the fact that um, if, in fact, they have good cause or good reasons why the condition can't be corrected within the statutory time period, the statute does allow for an owner to ask for extensions of time. Um, I've been practicing in the housing part. I, I, I can't. I can't recall any time an owner asking for an extension of time before the before they're in court or asking HPD for an extension of time, but it is there. So if you you know, it's not likely. To, um, many of the kind of immediately hazardous conditions is, is probably unlikely being able to get a licensed contractor if you need that to get those things done within 24 hours. You should probably be asking for those extensions. But they're there and um, available to, to owners if they need to do that. But if they don't get those extensions, um, 24 for C, 30 days for B, 90 days for, for A. And if they fail to correct those conditions timely, then they can be subject to civil penalties. And, you know, and those civil penalties, specifically the C and B violations, can be very um, expensive. They accrue fairly quickly. Um, and um, if you don't deal with those conditions timely, you could be facing a lot of damages if, in fact, the tenant or HPD can prove um, its case regarding the failure to correct those violations. I have a fair amount of experience with actually asking for extensions when it comes to uh, orders to correct and getting landlords more time. Um, but uh, I think we can, I can talk about that more when we talk about defenses to civil penalties. But um, basically, there, there are a couple of specific instances where the landlord can, um, in effect, give themselves more time by going to the court to try and fix various violations. And I'd like to circle back just very quickly about how the housing maintenance code really is the bare minimum. Um, because you see that in the repairs done, often by landlords where the repair work is really just shoddy work. It's just enough to have HPD lift the violation to avoid these you know, civil penalties, um, but not really enough to, to improve the living conditions for the tenants. So, you know, like was said earlier, painting over the mold, um, you know, correcting uh, paint and plaster, but not fixing the leak. There's a lot of times where you see underlying conditions that are never addressed. So tenants continue, continually have to be bringing the same case every year or very routinely. Um, so I just wanted to make that note that you really do often see shoddy repair work because the housing maintenance code is just the floor, the standard that is very bare. If I could speak to that for a moment, I think it's I think you're correct, but I also think that with the harassment statute in place that it's a dangerous um, way to go about addressing conditions that reoccur like that. For, exa for example, a ceiling leak um, for a top floor tenant, that's gonna re probably require you fixing the roof, right? 
And it's probably cheaper to go inside the apartment and uh, patch the holes and the water damage. But if that condition continues to reoccur and violations continue to be placed for that same condition, there is an argument that that could fall under the harassment statute. And that opens up a different um, ways to punish a landlord if a court finds harassment under those facts. And same thing with mold and the other things that we were talking about where you may not necessarily be able to see the condition right away and a landlord could do certain things to hide the condition for some amount of time. Um, but if it comes back, there, are, there can be um, serious repercussions. And of course, when I'm speaking about a landlord doing this, um, this is from an ex of experience. There are many landlords that do it right and the case goes away and that is the hope. But there are some um, respondent landlords who uh, take the route of we'll patch it and let's see what happens in a few months and we'll deal with whatever happens then. And it's, and perhaps if in the future, if we can talk about harassment, um, it's a uh, it's it's a dangerous game to play if that if that's the way you're going about maintenance because the harassment statute does have quite a bit of teeth in it. I think we could keep this conversation going and going and going between this group, but I think this is a good natural stopping point. We hope that this first episode has piqued your interest and that you will join us next time when we talk about how to get your case in front of the judge. And what actually happens once you get to court? Thank you for listening to this New York City Bar Association podcast. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Find more City Bar podcasts and program audio on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, or on our website at nycbar.org slash podcasts. This podcast was produced by Alex Cardaris.